Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So Galatians is where we're at, chapter 3. I'm going to have Serena come up and read. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage, <clears throat> bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I want you to think back to the Garden of Eden. Because everything really began there, didn't it? In fact, it was there that God and man were united as if their own family unit, one family. In fact, the genealogy of Jesus that's recorded for you in Luke's gospel will refer to Adam as being the son of God. You know, everybody else who comes after him, it mentions their father name. But for Adam, his identity, the way he's always been viewed, is that Adam was the son of God. This was the kind of bond and connection that humanity experienced. God and man, they shared it together. They were a family. But then the serpent came. We know him as the great deceiver, don't we? And he began to question, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? His aim, think about it, was to suggest to Adam and Eve, well, do you really know the kind of God who set you here? And how could you believe that he really wants what's best for you? How could you believe that he really loves you when he's restricting you? You're not his beloved. You're his hired servants. He's placed you here to look after his garden while forbidding you from enjoying it. You're not his sons, you're his slaves. He's not your father, he's your master and slave driver. One author, he'd say it this way, he'd say, tragically, Adam and Eve, they became what they wrongfully thought themselves to be. They would abandon the intimate place and relationship with God that they had to make themselves far less than the sons of God. They'd find themselves instead to be made into slaves of sin. As the book of Romans will tell you, they became enslaved to fear as they felt the crushing weight and burden of responsibility to fix this issue with no hope of restitution, with no hope of reconciliation. This is actually, I think, the same temptation that each of us face as the adopted children of God. The allurement and push of our enemy, the great deceiver, 
is to try to get us to fail to see God for who he is and who he wants to be for us, to fail to see him as a father and to heed the voice of that great deceiver that we believe that maybe God is withholding good from us, that he's merely a master and that I am merely his servant, his slave. But think about it. Paul is writing the Galatians saying, this is why we do not, because of that temptation, because of that battle, because of that identity crisis, this is why we do not merely need redemption from the Son and adoption by the Father. But this is also, this passage tells you, this is also why you need the spirit of adoption, God's Holy Spirit, at work in your life affirming these things are true affirming that the Son has redeemed you, and when he did that, that the Father adopted you, the Holy Spirit is now looking to affirm those truths deep inside of you. This is the ministry of the spirit of adoption. It's meant to develop in your heart a deep-seated confidence that you really are the beloved Son of a gracious Heavenly Father. You see, on this side of Eden, true sonship to God, it became a distant memory. It was a lost an unrecoverable privilege that man had forfeited when he rebelled and sinned against God. But on this side of the cross, true sonship can be ours again because Christ would take our place under the condemnation of the law and judgment of God so that we then in exchange could receive his identity and his place in the family of God. My friends, in Christ, we are sons, but we are in danger of operating our whole lives with the mindset of a hired servant. Don't miss this, because this is really the point of my message, and it's a one-point message for you today. It's that, yes, we are sons, but we are in danger of living our whole lives with the mindset of a hired servant. You see, your question for the day is not about how God sees you. It's how do you see yourself? The question of the day is, are you a slave or a son? Are you a slave or a son? Now, here's what's wild. This passage tells me clearly that the whole of the Godhead, the full Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is involved in and fully invested in our identity being realized and experienced by us. The full of the Godhead is invested in making this real to us. The Father is determined to get his family back. The Son came to to secure the change in our legal status before God in the great exchange that would take place where he takes my place and I receive his, his identity as a son. And the Spirit of God then came into my life to give me the experience of who God has made me. To to have it settle in my heart, to, to know and experience the joy of my identity that God sees me different and that I get to see myself different now too. That I am now a child of God with a wonderful heavenly father. You know, I don't think it's overstating it to say that this might be the the most significant thing for you and I to realize second only to the gospel itself. Second only to the the idea that we've been discussing of grace, of accounted righteousness, not accomplished. 
that God transfers Jesus' goodness, his right standing with him to our account, like a bank transfer when my account was at a negative and now is brought not just uh, to, uh, to no longer owe God, but now there's merit and credit in my account because of what Jesus did. There was an exchange that happened. It's not that I have accrued it. It's not that I have earned it. It's not that I have accomplished my right standing with God. It's that it was accounted to me by someone else's wealth and resources being made available to me. That's the terminology scripture uses. That's the most important thing for you to know. The second most important thing for you and I to be certain of is the byproduct of it though. He didn't just make my account balance go to zero. It's that he put merit and credit inside of it so that I have inexhaustible resources. So that in the sight of God, I please him. It's not just that I have wronged him, but no longer owe him. It's that I now please God and am seen as a son. This might be the most significant thing for you and I to take hold of. This is how we identify, is that I am a son of God. You see, my salvation is all about what Jesus has done on my behalf and my simple willingness to receive it by faith, right? In fact, me believing every day that I'm a son of God will or will not, it won't, have any impact on my eternal experience with God in heaven to come. But me being certain of that identity, secure in that identity as the son of God who's loved by him today changes my experience today on this earth, in this life, dramatically. If I can hang on to this, this doesn't change my right standing with God. But if I hang on to this, this will change my experience beginning today. When I live in confidence that God is my Father and I am His beloved Son, I experience rest. I can experience peace. There's comfort and there's freedom connected to this reality. I can know that God will provide for me because I am his son. I can know with confidence that he'll lead me. I know with confidence that he'll stand by me, that he'll always defend me, that he will love me because not of what I do, but because of who I am in Christ. That I am now accounted as the the righteous son of God. I read through a wonderful little book this past week written by a Scottish theologian and preacher. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. The book is entitled Children of the Living God. And here's what he said. He said, it is the way, not the only way, but the fundamental way for the Christian to think about himself or herself. Our self-image, if it is to be biblical, will begin just here. God is my father. I am one of his children. I know my real identity, and his people are my brothers and sisters. The father destines us to be his children. The son comes to make us his brothers and sisters. The spirit then is sent as the spirit of adoption to make us fully aware of our privileges. Reminds me of J.I. Packer's famous book, Knowing God, where he said this. He said, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. My friends, we're talking today because the passage brings it to the surface about humanity's identity crisis. 
and a crisis that even for us as followers of Jesus that we can find ourselves still in. Who are we? How do we relate to God? How do you describe your connection with him? How do we think? With what terms do we think about his connection to us? What's our identity? Are you a slave or are you a son? Again, this is just a one-point message this morning. So what I'd like to do is walk through the passage together because I want to make sure that you're clearly seeing what Paul is laying out for us here. And please remember that this letter was being written to the churches that Paul had planted in the region of Galatia. And he's writing this letter because these Judaizers, as historians and historical documents were referencing them there in that era, they had arrived and are pushing on the people to begin to use the law, the strict adherence to it, to make themselves into the sons of Abraham. Make yourself an heir to God's promise to Abraham. Make yourself pleasing to God as Abraham was by keeping the law. But as we've seen, this is a gross misunderstanding of the law and a misrepresentation of its purpose. You remember last week, this is the question we answered. What's the purpose of the law in the first place? Well, the purpose of the law, you remember, is that it's a mirror. We talked about this last week that reveals the real me to me. It's a tutor that points me in the direction of Christ. Remember that tutor? It was the Jiminy Cricket-like fi uh, figure, an external consciousness, uh, an external conscience with a club in his hand. That's what we were talking about. But it's not a scoreboard. It's a mirror. It's a tutor that points me in the direction of Christ, but it's not a scoreboard that I point to in order to show God and others that I'm winning based on my own merit. The law is a mirror and a tutor, but it isn't a scoreboard. You see, our yielding to what the law shows me about myself and my need for a Savior and turning to Christ alone in faith is what makes me a son of Abraham and members together of God's family. In fact, look at your Bible beginning in verse 26, because here's where we left off, where it says that you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, period. For as many as you, as were baptized into Christ, have put Christ on. The imagery is that of a young person in a Roman society reaching a certain age where they would take a child's clothing and give him the toga, the customary toga, that all of the adults in the community would wear. He's saying you've come of age. There's something that's happened where you've put Christ on completely. You've seen it for what it really is, and it was your faith. But he also mentions baptism here. You need to understand, Paul is writing to tell them that something like circumcision doesn't make them save, faith alone does. So he's not implying here that their baptism is what saved or rescued them. No, faith was the inward work of salvation. Baptism is the outward expression of it, the outward demonstration of that faith that proclaims it to the world. He's telling them, you've had the whole transformation take place. God transforming your heart, you going public with your faith, your whole identity shifted to where you're clothed with Christ where people look your direction and see that you're totally different, where there is now, verse 28, neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Christ alone, not the law, makes us into this one united family where differences no longer divide or, or are exploited by us which is not to say that we all of a sudden become colorblind 
Or it's not to say that we all of a sudden choose to overlook even people among our own gathering who may be impoverished. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we are committed together as a united family. Think about it this way. We should look around here like the DMV, but with a smile. The DMV is like the one melting pot of society where it doesn't matter who you are, you have to show up for an appointment. Or at least I tell myself that. Don't don't ruin it for me and say, well, no, actually, the super rich, they don't have to go. But everybody somehow rubs elbows with other people that they'd never rub elbows with outside of there because they have one thing in common. They need an identification card. For us, we have one thing in common. We should look very different. We should have difference of opinions. We should have lots of diversity here that can be celebrated because we have one thing in common. And it's the truest thing about us. It's that we are a part of the same family, that we have the same father. One commentator, he penned it this way. He said, the gospel has such radical social implications. It means that I am a Christian before I am anyone or anything else. It means that all barriers that separate people in the world into warring factions come down in Christ. Whether these were cultural barriers, we are neither Jew nor Greek when we are here. We are followers of Jesus. Whether these are class barriers, we are neither slave nor free, rich nor poor. We are Jesus people, a part of the family of God when we are here. Even gender barriers, when we are here, it is not a divide between men and women, male and female. No, we are Jesus's people when we are here. We are one together in Christ Jesus, it says. And then Paul shifts gears and gives another illustration. You remember last week, the illustration was that Jiminy Cricket character, the the person who was a part of raising a child in a wealthy Greek or Roman household, who's constantly seen with a stick in his hand, trying to shape the moral uh, outlook and and the worldview of that child, whacking them constantly. He said, this is what the law functioned as. But here's what he says this time around, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, where he talks about a child who is an heir to a massive amount of wealth, a huge inheritance. And even though that child might have millions of dollars in assets headed his way in the future, when he's a child, he lives as if he's a poor man who has none of those resources available to him at all. He lives as if he's a slave or a servant where he can't make decisions of how to move that wealth or what to do with it. Because he doesn't have a penny to spend because he is yet to mature and receive his inheritance. If a five-year-old version of me had received hundreds of millions of dollars in an inheritance, I would have bought up every cookie on planet Earth. It wouldn't have gotten much better if a 10-year-old version of me would have had hundreds of millions of dollars at my disposal. I would have bought every baseball card on planet Earth. At 15, it would have been sports cars. Like, there's a reason that I don't give my kids our grocery budget and say, go for it, go shop. Because we don't trust kids to make great decisions with resources. This is kind of what he's using here as an illustration. His point here is that it's more than just unnecessary and foolish to put ourselves back under the law. It's like someone who's received a gift and gave it back and said, now I want to earn it. It's that we have great freedom. We are no longer that child. We've moved on from there to receive a full inheritance. But now we are saying, actually, keep it. Let me go back into what feels almost like slavery without the freedom, without the freedom of a new identity and of endless, limitless resources that God gives us access to. It's let me go back to living as a slave rather than as a son. It's leaving sons to live day by day as a slave. 
But he says all of that changes in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, the identity for that slave would change because when the fullness of time had come, God would send his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time, it's telling you that this is not just a random point in time, nor even a specific point in time. This was a strategic point in time that God in heaven had preordained and planned. It's something worthy of further development, but in the consciousness of time, we're going to move on from it and just tell you it's, it's fun to come back to this concept or for you to do your own search on your own. The fullness of time, what would that imply? But don't miss this. I don't want to overlook the point of why he came. When the fullness of time had come, God sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, for what purpose? To redeem. To redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus came, it says, to redeem us. The imagery linguistically that's being used here is that of a slave being purchased off the slave block. It's telling you that Jesus didn't merely save you from heaven where he threw you a rope to keep you from drowning. No, Jesus came not just to save, but to purchase you. He could not rescue you without paying a price for you. And Peter says he would purchase you with the the precious blood of his own life. His own life would be exchanged for you to redeem you, to buy back the slave, to set him free so that the father could do what? What does it say here? You were redeemed, freed from the identity of a slave in order to be adopted. Isn't that beautiful? When you think about like, what does God want from me? What is God doing? God rescued you. He redeemed you. He freed you in order to adopt you. You see, Jesus would arrive in the manger on Christmas morning, leaving the splendor and glory and safety of heaven. And he would arrive and have the shadow of the cross loom over that little cradle he'd be laid in so that the Father could embrace wayward sons and daughters for all of eternity. Salvation, when you think about it, is described in Scripture as the Father making you belong again in the family of God, through the means of the Son, exchanging your identity for His, and the Spirit of God affirming it to be so in my heart, affirming that I am now the beloved Son of God who belongs at home in the family of God. But how do I see myself? Am I a slave or a son? My friends, adoption is not a change in nature. It is an instant change in status. It's a change that I was powerless to make. It's a change that God would declare and make a reality in an instant. And it's a change that is irreversible, dependent entirely upon God's gracious love for me. And it's a change that the Spirit of God is determined to help you realize and experience in a powerful and life-giving way. Because in verse 5, it says, we've been redeemed, those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Adopted as sons. I realize in a 21st century context, we can kind of choke on that and say we don't know that we feel super comfortable with why, why is it just that we are adopted as sons? What about the ladies here? And if this rubs you the wrong way, then there's likely a bit of a misunderstanding that I'd like to speak to just for a moment, because this is not some misogynistic disdain or disregard for women. Remember in the Bible that I, as a man, I'm referred to as the bride of Christ. And that's not a slam on me. That that is telling me that I am the recipient of the extravagant love of God. 
I love how the prophet Isaiah said it. He says, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so our God rejoices over you. I am the bride of Christ. That imagery is to bring to mind the extravagant love of God for me. But to be a son of God speaks of the grace and full acceptance of God for all of us. You see, in that cultural era, sons received the full inheritance. It was not legal for a daughter to receive it. Because they alone were the legal heirs, the sons. Here God is speaking, really, not just to men, but directly to women through the gospel, saying that you are not a second-class citizen, that you are all sons, recipients of God's grace and full acceptance. Again, because you are sons, God sent his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Don't feel the need to add the little line in your Bible that you are a son and a daughter to Paul's statement. Because his statement was intentional. Other places in Paul's writings, he will reference us as sons and daughters. But his statement here is to tell you that we all have equal access and status, equal grace and inheritance, that we are sons and heirs together. But my friends, do you experience the comfort The comfort we're supposed to find in God being our Father. How do you see yourself? Is this foreign to you? Do you see yourself as a slave or as a son? It's massive what it's saying here that that God does in in the life of of someone who who God has rescued and redeemed because of their faith. It's massive what it says the Holy Spirit begins to do. He begins to work in your heart once the Son is rescued and redeemed us, making a way for humanity to find their way back into the Father's loving care again. He sends His Spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. You see, God the Spirit's work begins in your life, in your heart. Yes, a work of transformation at the moment that you believe where he's going to make you more and more into the image of Christ. But a part of that transformation is making you settled into the identity of Christ. He's not just trying to make me look like Jesus from the outside. He's making me to believe that I am as Jesus. I am God's loved son on the inside. That he's affirming this. My, he's wanting me to begin to recognize my acceptance by God and the love that he has for me as a perfect father for his beloved child. And this is God's eternal goal. If you fast forward to the end of the book, what it tells you in Revelation 21 is that God's great goal has been realized that he who overcomes, it says, Revelation 21 verse 7, shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son that we will be full-fledged heirs of all things. It's telling you that God will hold nothing. Your Father will hold nothing back from you. You know, isn't it true? A little child will intuitively, instinctively, somewhat even naively, call out to their parents and even throw their arms into the air in full expectation that they will be met with comfort and love and care. And then our broken life experience will slowly undermine and take away that childlike, simplistic faith. What this passage is telling me, though, is that the Spirit of God is looking to turn the clock backwards. He's trying to turn the clock of my heart backwards. 
to where I would approach God as a father with that kind of simplicity, that kind of authenticity, that instinctively. Some would even look and say that naively. No, but it's not because Jesus took my place and was punished as if a slave of sin. I received his position in place as the beloved son of God. God sent his son to redeem us, to shift our legal status. When that exchange took place, we were adopted as God's sons. And then God sent his spirit to affirm us, to secure and settle our actual experience of it in our hearts. Oh, because you are sons, now the spirit of God is crying out through you, Abba, Father. This is what the Spirit of God is at work developing in my own heart. As he's at work transforming my life, I'm meant to have a growing natural compulsion to turn to God as a child would in a moment of fright or pain or worry. And I'm not turning to God with some prepared speech, but with a vulnerability that has been found in the safety to express my trust and and the safety to cast my cares on him, knowing with the deep-seated confidence that he cares about what happens to me. I spent some time this week on the phone with a friend who's adopted a couple of kids. And I asked him, how did you know that it had settled into their minds and hearts that they felt safe and secure? How did you know when that moment arrived when they actually knew that they were sons? For them, they had adopted kids out of the foster system. This is an incredible family, but the foster system, the turnover of them being in different homes, but finally landing in a home with people who looked them in the eyes and said, you belong here. It didn't click overnight. But he said, you know what we began to see is that when they openly expressed things that they liked and did not like, when they were willing to tell us what they wanted and even what they needed, when they freely express those things without hesitation and without needing to put all the little excuses around it, like this might be nice, but don't worry about it, but just could express those things naturally, he said, then we realized that they were free to be themselves because they felt safe as sons. When you feel safe as a son, you're free enough to be yourself that you can express your heart freely. The once and the things you don't want, the needs, and the things that you're saying, please, God, rescue me from this. Without hesitation, open, raw, real, and honest. Not some prepared speech, but going to God vulnerably and open, confident that you can cast your cares on him with a deep-seated confidence that he cares about what happens to you because he's a father. This is the Spirit's work in your life. When you cry out, I can, I can do so with such simplicity and informality. For although I'm calling out to the King of heaven, I'm also confidently crying out as a beloved son to his dad. I'm crying out as a child to their daddy. It's a sweet gift when you get to be a parent and you start to hear, hear your kids crying for dad. I had someone tell me, count your lucky stars that they first learned mom in our household, all three of them did, rather than dad, because in the middle of the night, they cried not for me, but for her. It was our youngest when she got to the age of talking, rather than calling me daddy, like the other ones had, uh, she called me Trevor, (laughs) which was a tough one for my heart. (laughs) I think from her hearing other people call me Trevor, I I don't know, It took a while to get Declan to call me daddy, but it's a special thing to me 
because there's, there's an intimacy, there's a nearness. No one else calls me that. There's a safety that they have calling me that. There's affection, there's love that's present. The cool thing is here, Paul throws a linguistic curveball shifting from the Greek language to another language, to Aramaic, a language that was the street language of the day, the common language. It wasn't formal. There was nothing formal about it, but it would be the language that Jesus himself in Mark's gospel would cry out from the Garden of Gethsemane and would say in Aramaic, remember, Abba, Father. He throws this linguistic curveball to take your mind and mine back to the way that Jesus would address his father in his most vulnerable of moments, and he would address him so affectionately as Abba. Just the simple street language, it's simply daddy. And please hear me, just as you were given the place and position of Jesus, his very identity given to you, you can also now cry out with the same confidence and vulnerability as Jesus. In Romans 8, 15, it says it this way, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's an amazing thing today. There's still no other religion in the world that addresses God as a father, much less in such simple, affectionate terms as a child would refer to their father as daddy. And wouldn't you agree that some 2,000 years later, this is still a scandal that Jesus would not only invite us, he would instruct us to approach our God with the confidence of a child running into the arms of their loving father. Don't you see the unique and intimate relationship between the father and the son is now being shared by the son with all of his people? Quoting one theologian, he said, Christ is giving us access to the presence of his Father and saying to us, you may now speak to him as I speak to him. With the same right of access, with the same sense of intimacy, with the same assurance that he loves you. My friends, this is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's great, yes, to finish your prayer and say in Jesus' name, amen. I'm not saying stop doing that. I think it's great. But he's telling you, that we can speak to the Father as Jesus does because the Father's ears will open as graciously to my cries as they did to the voice of his own Son. My friends, do you experience the comfort of God being our Father? Or have you succumbed to the, the voice of the great deceiver like they did in the garden? who comes along wanting to rob us of that comfort just as he robbed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Oh, are you a slave or are you a son? Has he whispered the same things to you that you're not his beloved, that you're just a hired servant? That yes, he's placed you here, but just to look after his things while forbidding you from enjoying them. You're not his sons, you're his servants. He's not your father, he's your master. And he's a slave driver. Oh, tragically for Adam and Eve, they became what they wrongly thought themselves to be. They abandoned their intimate place in a relationship with God to make themselves far less than sons of the Father. They made themselves slaves of sin. And that is the same temptation that faces each of us as the children of God. Remember, the allurement and the push from the deceiver is for us to no longer see God as a father, but to heed the voice of the great deceiver, believing that God is withholding good from us and that he's merely a master and we are merely his servants. 
and that we too tragically become what we wrongly think ourselves to be. We live and think as slaves, even though we were made to be sons. My friends, it's not just the lesson of the Garden of Eden. It's not even just the lesson of Galatians chapter 4. But it was Jesus' own lesson, his own story. It's something Jesus had warned us about, about us having a secure identity as beloved sons while thinking and living as abject slaves under a perceived cruel master. So I want to wrap up just by telling you that story that Jesus told that illustrates this so very well. So here's how we wrap up. It's by me just talking, I'm not even going to have you turn there, but me just talking you through the story that Jesus told about this very thing. It's the story that we refer to as the prodigal son. It's found in Luke 15. And I'll quote one final time from Sinclair Ferguson's little book, The Children of the Living God. He said, although this story is probably the best known and loved of all of Christ's parables, the lesson it teaches us as Christians is often overlooked. What is that lesson? The reality of the love of God for us is often the last thing in the world to dawn upon us. Many Christians go through much of their life with the prodigal's suspicion. The story personifies the very danger that we're speaking of here, of being a son, but operating with the mindset of a hired servant. In fact, both of the sons will use that that exact terminology in describing the way that they viewed their relationship with their father. Please remember in Jesus' story that that we call the prodigal son, that there's two sons and that both of them were lost, one because of his outward rebellion and waywardness and one because of his inward waywardness. One was separated because of his badness, we'd say, the rebellion that that he lived out, but one was separated because of his own self-perceived goodness. The pride that was in his heart ostracized him from his father. The disconcerting thing, though, in the story that Jesus would tell is that both of the sons are far from the father, estranged from his heart. And when the young son comes to his senses, remember, after spending everything he had, wasting all of it, coming to his senses between two pigs, eating pig slop and thinking, surely I could fare better in my father's house. When he came to his senses and returned home, the older brother in the story was furious to see the welcome that his younger brother received when he arrived home. But do you remember what he said? The older brother goes to his father and says, all these years I've been slaving away for you. And I've never received a party like this. All these years I've been here slaving away for you. His words don't just reveal his disdain for his brother, It reveals the great distance that exists between he and his father. And it wouldn't just be the older son who'd be revealed as having this thinking that he's slaving away. It would be present in the younger brother too. Because the younger brother's voice is clearly heard in Jesus' story as he's walking back towards home, rehearsing his speech for his dad. Remember, getting ready for the moment where his father would come and encounter him, where they'd be face to face again together after he had rebelled against him and disrespected him and squandered all of it. And do you remember the the speech that he rehearsed? He said, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just please have mercy on me and allow me to be a hired servant. A hired servant is someone who lived outside the home. Yeah, sure, maybe on the property, but outside the home because they didn't belong inside of it. And they would work for an honest wage, but that's all that they would receive. He's saying, sir, just give me a chance to repay the debt I've incurred. 
Sir, just give me time to re-earn my place and position in this family as a son. But the moment's so beautiful, isn't it? When he tries to deliver that well-rehearsed speech in the presence of his father, the father cuts him off. So much of the time, although for me, I can turn and begin my journey home, I do so as if I'm returning to a father who's going to demand an explanation. And I do that because I still believe that I have to earn his love because I still expect that I need to prove myself, because I still believe that being safe and home and loved is possible, but not promised, but not secure, but not certain. And listen, although for me personally, and maybe you too, my personal journey and story doesn't really mirror the younger sons on the surface. It most definitely does, though, when I look beneath the surface, For me, it wasn't until I began to understand grace when I started to understand that God wasn't just some angry judge, that he was instead a loving father. It was then that I realized that when I stumble, fail, and fall, I only need to reclaim my sonship, not re-earn it. I'm a son who's walking home to re-embrace my sonship, the identity that is already mine, not to re-earn it. I need to walk home and re-engage with my true identity so that I could be embraced by a father where he whispers to me that I'm home and that I belong and that I'm loved and forgiven already. You see, the younger brother's story is not just your story if you ran too far in dark places before finally coming home. The younger brother's story is not just your story if you left your faith and waited until your life was in absolute shambles and your diet was pig slop before returning home to the father. Now You're like the younger son if you say you are at home in the father's house and yet look to the world to define you. You're like the younger son if you find yourself internally frantic, constantly trying to assure yourself that you've earned the love that you know that you crave. You're like the younger son if you deny that the father's love is a totally free gift given to you. Author Henry Nouwen said, I leave home every time I lose faith in the voice of the one that calls me his beloved son. Leaving home is living as though I need to look for a way to prove myself and a place to belong. Leaving home is a statement that my father's care and character cannot really truly be depended upon. May I just say that you and I are are yet to truly arrive home if we are still muttering, but I'm worthless. I'm ruined. It's beyond repair. I'm unlovable. I'm nobody. Because when you arrive home, your heart no longer says those things. It instead becomes settled on your sonship, your value, your being loved by God. You see, the son's internal dialogue ceased when the father's voice was louder than his own. The father or the son's internal dialogue, your internal dialogue can cease when the father's voice is louder than your own. And the father's voice that I'm meant to hear echoing over 2,000 years is the booming voice that was heard over Jesus at his baptism. He hadn't done a miracle. He hadn't preached a message. He hadn't saved a soul. 
And yet, what did the father say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Why was he pleased with Jesus if Jesus hadn't done anything? Because of his identity, because of whose he was. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, wouldn't you agree? There's a great distance between turning to travel home and actually arriving there. And you know you've arrived safely home when you trust the Father's love enough to no longer see yourself as a second-class citizen or as merely a servant who's permitted to enter the house. But instead, you see yourself as a son who belongs in the home because of your confidence in the Father's love for you. My friends, the cross is where the roots of that confidence are found. And I'm yet to feel as though I deserve the Father's love again or the safety of his home. I have not earned my position as his son back ever, not even once, but I was never asked to because the cross extinguished that requirement. Jesus made a way for me to be accepted back to no longer carry the identity of the prodigal by him, Jesus, becoming, in a sense, the prodigal for us where he left his home, his house, the house of the Father in heaven, to go to a distant country where he would recklessly give everything that he had and everything that he was, he'd give it away. Where he'd be isolated and pushed away and rejected like a foreigner in a land that was not his own. And he too would return to the Father only after pouring out absolutely everything that he had. Jesus coming to the end of himself was not him shoulder to shoulder between two pigs. No, it was him, Jesus, hanging between two thieves on a cross, breathing his last breath. He did it all not as a rebellious son, though. He did it as an obedient one, being dispatched to make a way for every wayward rebellious son or daughter to return home to the loving embrace of a father. Like the younger son, Jesus would set aside his identity, not in an attempt to build a new one separate from the Father for himself. No, he would set it aside that he might share that identity with every one of his followers. You see, there is no journey home to the Father outside of the journey that Jesus made. And when I take that journey with him home to the Father, I'm guaranteed the same welcome that he received from the Father. The Father will stand and pronounce, My children who are dead are alive again. Those who were lost, so very lost, they've been found again because my prodigal son has brought them home again. Are you a slave or are you a son? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.